Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Oh, it feels so good to say this. We're back. Create More is back. Welcome to the new series of the Create More podcast. I am your host, Ben Stewart. On today's episode, we have Nav and Jack, the co-founders of Analog Motion. I'm really excited to have these guys on. One, because I own one of their bikes. Um, this is their second uh, design of bike, the, the AMX Classic, the one that's just been released. So they started back in 2014. They had an idea to create an e-bike company. And now, fast forward to today, and they have thousands and thousands of bikes shipped around the world. They have millions of pounds worth of turnover. They've got f- six people in their office in East London, which is where I recorded this podcast. I should just point out that this was recorded uh, before Christmas, uh, well before all the lockdowns were announced, uh, just FYI. And it's been an amazing story. Uh, It's been really inspirational to hear kind of how enthusiastic they are and also really interesting to kind of hear the highs and lows and what their plans were and how they've changed over the last five years and where they see the next five years of of e-bikes going. So it's a really exciting episode. I hope you enjoy it. Um, I'm just going to jump straight into it and listen to the end to find out who's on next week's podcast. Enjoy. Okay. Hello. We're in. So I feel like I should give you guys a bit of background first, but I'm going to introduce you as Nav and Jack as the founders of Analog Motion. And as a bit of backstory, I've not bought not just one of your bikes, but I've also managed to persuade my brother's wife to get one of your bikes as well. So I feel like I'm fully invested and I thought I'm going to come here and I'm going to see what I've what I've bought myself into. Um, but as a bit of background, I think a lot of our listeners that create more Uh, A lot of them are students and there's also like professionals, but ultimately it's understanding more about different types of professions. So the reason I wanted to chat to you guys was you guys have done a successful, two successful Kickstarter campaigns and I'm genuinely fascinated. I want to know, like, uh, would you advise other people, you know, to start a Kickstarter campaign? What's your background? How did you get into it? So maybe if I start with you, Nav, about if you explain what Analog Motion is and how, how long it's been going for and how it started. Sure. Thanks for the kind intro. You're welcome. It began really around 2015, whenever I moved to London. It was around the same time Jack also moved to London. And at that time, I had a commute from Manor House to Canary Wharf, which is about nine miles. And it would take around one hour, 15 approximately, to get there via public transport. And I thought, there's got to be a better way than this. It actually... It kind of blew my mind that everyone was so okay with spending that much time on public transport um, in in hot underground carriages every day, over two hours a day. And so I got a bike and that solved one of the problems, which was that we could arrive at the office um, with, uh, with, with, with in a more relaxed state of mind, you've done some exercise, but you'd still you save some time, but you'd still arrive sweating. And so around that point, I was playing with some motorized components and, um, uh, Jack and I started to build up the first prototype. 
And then we started to build different versions of analog motion prototypes um, before even had a name. Um, that where, where, sorry, where was this? Was it back in your studio, or did, did, did where, where, where were you building these prototypes? This was all done in a spare bedroom in my house. Um, it was just uh, parts strewn across the floor. Um, actually, it was on an old. Uh, it was my it was my childhood mountain bike. It was a uh, GT Aggressor, and um, <laughs> nice. it was uh, it was it was it was a tiny bike frame. I didn't really know much about bike sizing at the time. And so I just stuck this 1.2 kilowatt motor on it and um, well, built some custom batteries using the same battery packs that you use in remote control cars. Uh, for those that don't know, 1.4 kilowatts is a lot of power. I, I was about to ask for a yeah. bit of context. What, what's a battery on a current bike, like 250 watts? So the, mo- the motor that's on our current bike is 250 watts, so yeah. 0.25 kilowatts, and this is 1.4, so... 1.4 so you're Roughly you're looking at almost cartoon like acceleration yeah, it was it was a motorbike <laughs> it was it was incredibly fun it was incredibly dangerous as well and uh, it was incredibly unreliable but it, it 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 sprung the idea and we realized that, that this was the future of getting through a city and so 2015 is a bit of context. I, I'm I'm still lost in the timeline of e-bikes. Because in my head, they're now just so popular and just uh, ubiquitous everywhere. But 2015, they they were on no one's horizon really, or they weren't really around much. Don't remember. Not not in the UK. They were. Um, there was a lot of DIY e-bikes around. There was a few forums whereby some enthusiasts would be combining parts and putting things together and having a lot of fun, but you wouldn't have seen that many on the streets. And if you weren't looking out for them, you'd probably see none. With yeah. your firework-like acceleration of your 1.4 kilowatt <laughs> bike. And is, is your background in bikes in, in any shape or form, or is it product design generally, and you just had fun with bikes, or had, why bikes? So my background is product design. Mm. Uh, both our backgrounds are product design. And um, bikes, w- with, with a background in product design, you can apply that thinking to pretty much every product. I remember... Um, that we uh, at uni would would um, immerse ourselves in a new concept and 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 start to become experts over 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 a few months, and this is exactly what we did with with bikes as well, which was to completely immerse ourselves in that world, speak to component manufacturers, start building prototypes, testing, failing, having accidents. I still bear scars from a lot of the early prototypes, um, and uh, I walk around with a limb sometimes, <laughs> but. Um, but so so it was all just learning as as we went mm-hmm. and um that's the same principles that we apply to business as well which is to to learn as much as quickly as possible and is it both is your background like i, I guess a product design but bikes specifically was that was that a market that you thought okay there's something we can do interesting here or I think it came from solving our own problems, really. It was the, the, the commuting issue was something, Nav's mentioned his, but I shared that. I was Chiswick to uh, Clerkenwell at the time, which is 10 and a half miles. Um, and we were basically just building the perfect solution for our own commutes. And that inherently kind of drove, uh, kind of, I don't know, a need to find out more and learn about the nuts and bolts and how to get these things built up. Yeah, I guess that, that's if you use it that often every day and then you stick a 1.4 kilowatt battery on, you suddenly realize there's definitely an advantage to zooming around everywhere at high speed. So that's 2015. And when was your first Kickstarter? It was 2000. 
18. 2018. So in that three years, were you doing other stuff or did, at what point did you go analog motion, we're, we're going all in? So both Jack and I had jobs as creative technologists at various agencies. I was at a big advertising and communications agency. Jack was at um, experiential design um, and product agency. And then we'd meet up in the evenings and we would start hacking together prototypes and we'd start around 10 o'clock at night and finish around six o'clock in the morning um, on a school night. And um, it was just the most fun. It was such a pure experience. We'd just stay up all night building things. And ultimately it was something that we both just loved doing. The building a product which you can then get on and ride yeah. at the end of it is is up there with one of the most rewarding exercises you can do i think i think as a human and as a designer yeah um, it is incredibly fun do you, do you know what's interesting i'm going to be completely honest one of the struggles I, i'm an architect one of the things i dislike about architecture is so slow and actually one of the reasons i love doing podcasts is the immediacy of like i did a thing we did it we put it out on the website and if we can listen to it i totally understand why you're like this is great i've built a thing and now i can test it it's the the annoyance of not having that feedback loop of like having to give it to someone else, they botch their way through it. It's not what you wanted. I mean, architecture, you can be like five years and you still haven't built anything. So yeah, I totally, um, totally get why that's exciting. And then, uh, yeah, so you're, it's 2017, you're starting to think about a company. So we incorporated in 2017. That's right. That was when we teamed up and we're like, wow, we can do this. We have skills we have the um resources to to just about get this over the line we were extremely ambitious with timelines there was yeah there was a moment where uh, what we were building went from kind of clearly thrown together kind of electrical tape and cable ties to uh an order that we placed through alibaba for some real product that arrived and felt real uh, it's hard to describe that feeling, but there was no, there wasn't a cable tie in sight, no electrical tape. This thing came out of the box and we were like, oh, this is actually what we were trying to create. So, I mean, I, I guess I'm, I'm, the reason I'm, I'm curious as well about the beginning of a company is that I'm fascinated. And this is a, a trait across all the podcasts is like, at what point did you believe you could run a company? And like, when did it go from like, just talking, talking, talking to like, we should just, let's just call it, like, we're going to make a company. We're going to go all in, we're going to quit our jobs and, and actually do that. What, what gave you the kind of confidence or was it the naivety to, to I, do it? I, I think those two things were split. I think when we first saw the product, we were like, wow, there's some legs in this. Uh, like, let's, let's do this. We literally had the kind of conversation. It's like, are we going to do this? It's like, yeah, we're going to do this. Okay. So we're in. And that way that came as a result of seeing a, a product that we both believed in the first time that we'd created. But the quit your job moment kind of came as a result of an sort of an explosive Kickstarter success, which we, which we weren't expecting. So were you, st- were you still at your current jobs whilst doing the first Kickstarter? So were your employers aware of how much energy and effort you were putting into this? Or were you like, the second this goes, I'm, I'm out. I'm off. <laughs> uh, Nav, do you want to lead on this one? No, they, they were aware, actually. Yeah. Um, I, I, I didn't try to hide it at all. In fact, they were quite vocal in, in supporting. In fact... Uh, the designer I sat beside, who's a very close friend, she bought the very first bike. Uh, she's number one customer. She bought one of the very first prototypes, which is um, I saw two days ago. Actually, it's still going. Nice. Um, with the same battery. That's really nice. I, uh, yeah. So you, you you do again like so the, the Kickstarter process in itself. How have you found that process if, for the first one? What 
Because I think a lot of people, I personally love the idea of a Kickstarter campaign. Mm. It sounds like the American dream. <laughs> You're like, you have an idea, you go on the website, all this money comes in and it's, it's done. I know it's infinitely more complicated than that. How did you find the process? Um, yeah, it, it does sound like the dream. <laughs> it does. Uh, but the, the process is traumatic. Like, traumatic. <laughs> it's as, yeah, it's as, it's as successful as it is traumatic. Like you, we, we needed it. We needed um, the validation of the product. And that's exactly what Kickstarter does. It li it's in the name. It literally kickstarts your product. I think where we say the traumatic comes from the fact that we thought it kind of also validates the company, which is actually comes next. And you learn that the hard way. Oh, I see. So at the beginning, you're a totally unproven entity and suddenly uh, that, that there, there becomes the non real time feedback. So you had an idea, you get all this money in, and then all these parts come in from all over the world and it takes months to or longer for them to arrive. Mm -hmm. And then suddenly you're like, OK, we've actually got to deliver it. And the pressure ramps up and up and up. And then all the bikes go and you're like, ah, oh. but you did it again. You decided the process was so much fun we must be masochists yeah yeah literally the day after we shipped our last kickstarter bike we launched the indiegogo <laughs> within 24 hours yeah i know and that was because you learned so much and i think i guess once the final bit of pressure went off you're like let's do it again <laughs> uh yeah you could put it that way i guess i mean it's not it's not what we necessarily wanted to do um in a perfect world you Everything goes according to your schedule and according to plan. But when you're manufacturing hardware, it's actually very hard. There is a lot of factors um, and a lot of naivety goes into it. For example, global logistics is so complicated yeah. and uh, so difficult. And especially when you're dealing with hazardous materials, lithium batteries and large boxes that are not just large physically, but heavy. So huge volumetric weights. It presents... Uh, a world of pain and actually once you've learned all the tricks and nuances it becomes repeatable because because uh, i guess what's been interesting is it's, to this year with all your bike deliveries it's been super smooth no issues you've had no global pandemics to Absolutely deal with nothing <laughs> <laughs> i think what's funny so as as a consumer when i bought this back in uh may it was uh the it was like it'll arrive in August and, and then obviously like all of these things outside of your control happened. But I remember getting an email saying, like, oh, your bike's in a container and it's been pulled over at customs and there's nothing we can do about it. So we'll let you know when it comes out of customs. I just thought, man, and that's just one process. This is one bit of this huge supply line you must be running. So to tell me about the supply, how many different parts are coming from all around the world? Because it's, it's a London design bike. Like I should I should point out that we are in your factory headquarters, headquarters. Uh, and it's lovely, but ultimately the bikes aren't built here and they're not shipped from here, are they? No, that's right. So um, they're assembled in China. The parts come from all over the world. We have German parts on there, um, Chinese parts on there, um, and then they are fulfilled from the UK. So that's kind of how the logistics works. So in terms of us getting this bike together, it's a case of sourcing uh, literally hundreds of parts, pulling them together at our assembly factory, assembling there, shipping to the UK, and then fulfilling to the world from the UK. Uh, so going back to the first Kickstarter then, uh, you had to work all of that out. So like you, or, or I, don't, I wasn't part of the original Kickstarter one, so I didn't, so did you already know exactly where all these parts were going to come from, or, or, or did you have to go through that process during the Kickstarter, uh, the Kickstarter campaign? So we kicked off the Kickstarter with a supply chain already set up, Okay. So our early prototypes were manufacturing prototypes that were made on the exact same assembly line that the final products were made. So 
we still use that supply chain today. We have a really strong relationship with an amazing family-run assembly factory in, um, in, in, in a city called Yongkang in, in China. And we go out there very regularly and we meet everyone and we go and meet all the factories that make our controllers and our motors and our frames. And um, we actually have a lot of fun and, and we, we, we uh, make changes on the fly in those production runs. So we, we, we went into the AM1 with all that set up. That said, there were some changes that we wanted to make because suddenly the scale increased and, and with increased scale, problems become magnified as well. So we had done some testing and we'd found that there's some components that we thought could be better. And so we made sure to introduce those into the new frame design in, um, and uh, basically ensure that those bikes would be running reliably for the entire lifespan and beyond. In addition to that, we also wanted to increase um, or up upgrade them because we raised more. We had some stretch goals we wanted to meet. We wanted to create new new um, frame styles, uh, frame colors, and um, explore paint finishes. So we took a bit of time to go uh, above and beyond. Um, combined with that, we had to figure out how we're going to ship bikes to so many different countries, 400 cities and almost 50 countries around the world. So each one of those requires special packaging um, and, and needs special allocation in order to, to get those to the consumer. That sounds absolutely horrendous to have to deal with. I guess uh, when, when you first kicked off this love of bikes and uh, e-bikes, suddenly I'd imagine, I guess you have the design of the bike and then the next part, six months, is all of the supply chain, the delivery logistics. Is it, do you guys do that as well? Or do, you, do you have people who do that for you? Um, yeah, so we're a really small team um, to deliver the, the the one that we're talking about here, the AM1 Kickstarter campaign, the first one. We were a team of three slash four. We expanded to four at the time, and now now we're at five. Um, so we do we we're still at that stage where everyone mucks in on everything. No one's we've got when we're, we're not specialists. We're all kind of jack of all trades uh, type roles. So we're very very acutely aware of all of the uh, nuances of uh, global fulfillment and all of the other things that go with that. And so when, with the AM1, did, did you have your own office? At, like, it was it the same office when you did the AM1 or you moved here recently? Yeah, no. So the AM1 was part um, nav spare bedroom. Um, we were still <laughs> there. And then we graduated to um, a shipping container in Containerville, just uh, across the road from here, which is a sort of startup community based in 40-foot um, shipping containers. Um, so that was kind of our first office. Um, we were very proud of it at the time, um, but it, you don't fit very many bikes in a 40-foot shipping container as well as or, having some logistics. Or, or anything for that matter, actually. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we outgrew that uh, for the AMX uh, Indiegogo. Because I, I, I got the sense instantly when I came in, you guys are really proud of this space. And actually, I imagine the way you just talked about the shipping container, because it was yours, it was your idea, it was your thing. It was like, yeah, this is ours, we built this. I'd imagine there's an enormous amount of pride. Was it was it fun being in this shipping container? But did you meet other like-minded people or was it, how did it work? Um, yeah, it was exactly that. It was, a, it was a community of startups and because of the scale of the office, you kind of get the same kind of scale of businesses there. So you're all kind of at the same stage and you're kind of, I would say kind of everyone's in a growth stage. They're in there. Everyone kind of look loves moving in also looks forward to the day they move out because it shows that they've kind of grown beyond the mm. capacity of a shipping container so in that sense it was a really kind of rich community we've made some good friends there that we stay in touch with now 
um, also some things that uh, some contacts that are useful to the business as well. That's cool. It's like a little incubator startup tank, think tank, whatever they're called. It was fun. Yeah. I, I, it was, the early days were really exciting. Yeah. When we, we had one day during the Kickstarter when it was live where we grossed 140,000 in, in revenue because we got featured on German television. And at, we woke up in the morning and, 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 <laughs> yeah. and we were like, what is going on? Where's all this traffic coming from? How are so many, every time we refreshed, we, we'd, we'd net another 8,000 pounds or 10,000 pounds. It was mind blowing. And it was that day where we happened to meet up and we were like, wow, I think we have to quit our jobs. <laughs> we were only expecting 25,000 and now we're over 300 and it's actually just too much now. Mm. And maybe we can even pay ourselves a little bit as well. So at that point, we, we both quit and um, worked on notice periods and then found uh, the shipping container. And at that point, it was a real adventure because we just sat there staring at each other for the first few days being like, well, what now? Mm. Um, we're a company. We're a, we're a company. Yeah, I mean, we, we, we might officially be a company, but we're still just two guys in a shipping container um, stroking our beards, trying to figure out what to do. Yeah, the answer to what now was freak out a bit and drink a lot of coffee, I think is the, the solution. Yeah. It's, ama- it's amazing to me that um, if you tell anyone, oh, we sold £100,000 worth of product in one day, you're like, oh my God, that's incredible. And you're like, yeah, well, no, it's not actually an enormous amount of money for, for us to pay ourselves and have a business. And I guess it's suddenly you went from being a like, oh, we're like a proper company. We have to deliver so many bikes now. Because with, with your original Kickstarter of... How much were you trying to get on the original Kickstarter? 25,000. And yeah. that would have built how many bikes? 50. 50 is kind of like, a, was the magic number at the time. Yeah. 50. And then now you're like, okay, we've got to deliver 50. Okay, we've got, you know, you've got your bedroom. Okay. How, how many bikes is 100,000? You've got to deliver like two or 300 or something. Uh, the campaign ended on, I think it was 500 and something bikes. So it was kind of literally 10x what we <laughs> had wanted to achieve. Yeah. Yeah. Did that change all your supply lines and things? Is it suddenly we, you just were like, oh, we've got a much bigger order. There were these guys, they can handle that capacity or... Yeah, so our um, our assembly factory can, uh, in theory, handle up to 300 bikes a day through through the doors. So this, oh. is, this is well under capacity for them. Um, as I was saying earlier, what it did enable was us to kind of make the product even better. Um, but it also kind of gave us weight as like a proper manufacturing run. So there's a kind of few few advantages that go with that. Like the fact that you, for example, we're getting into kind of fulfillment details here, but the fact that you're more than one shipping container was worth of bikes means you have your own shipping container, which means that you kind of have a little bit more leeway in the shipping logistics. Um, but also right the way back to, I remember the discussions at the time where we had this bike that had some annoying kind of like branding on it that we didn't like from like third party suppliers and at a number like 50, you can't even ask them to remove let alone put your own branding on. You can't ask them to remove the third party's branding. And when you get up to a number like 500, suddenly you have control over what they call it MOQs, minimum order quantities of, of, of parts. You can suddenly start to, you get like um, basically extra Lego bricks to play with because you can now customize more than you did before. And then did that open up your eyes to the, is this why that, that's what led on to the kind of, well, let's do another Indiegogo. Why did you switch from Kickstarter to Indiegogo? I don't really know much about the nuances of how each one works. Gosh, that's diving into the memory bank. Why did we switch? Yeah, we spent a lot of time talking about this. And ultimately, we thought that the Indiegogo demographic was best suited for the product that we were launching and also had broader reach combined with better ability to uh, host add-ons. So, for example, 
you could also buy a battery and a light pack and vendors with the product. So it was, it was, there was fairly, fairly boring reasons why, um, but it did make, we made so many mistakes on the Kickstarter campaign that were so painful for us that we just wanted to make our lives slightly easier for the Indigo campaign. Yeah, we made so many. So can, can you? What, what, I, I'm I'm almost as fascinated by the mistakes that people made as the successes. What, what can you talk about? The, the, I mean, the, it goes so deep, but it, <laughs> right the way down to we didn't even have a website when we launched Kickstarter, right? So we had to sort of we had to work out how to sell the bike that we just sold on Kickstarter through our own platform because we want to kind of like mature beyond the crowdfunding campaign. Um, and the integration between those two is just a complete nightmare. Everything from the fact that they, they genuinely don't speak to each other on a technology level, right the way down to when you've got to kind of balance your accounts at the end of the year, like really boring company task. The two are just sort of at odds with each other and you've got these two forms of data that just don't speak and you've just kind of created a complete headache for yourself, which detracts away from the real kind of meat of the business, you know, make bikes, deliver bikes. And suddenly we're spending weeks and weeks trying to make slight website changes that make things a bit smoother when it comes to like kind of doing our accounting or kind of trying to understand how our fulfillment center will make sense of the the garbage of data that we're going to throw in its direction when when the time comes and it's such it's such a personal thing when you first launch a company we had spent so many hours uh usually between 10 a.m and 6 a.m 10 p.m 6 a.m yeah working on this project and when you launch it out into the world you just kind of wait to see what people think about it and so you get loads of feedback and you just want to take it on you want to make every single person absolutely delighted with it because at the time a lot of the our early backers were our friends and family so we were we, we think of all our backers just like we think of our friends and when your friend says hey wouldn't it be cool if you go yeah Totally. Let's totally do that. Let's have 190 product variations. So it was two guys trying to get 190 variants of our product to, to 400 cities in 30 countries around the world. And that, that is logistically so difficult. It is so difficult. We set up a warehouse um, outside London and we had the most complicated fulfillment process where every bike would get part assembled there. And there, at one point, 30% of the bikes that went out were, were wrong. And so then we were having to correct all those and send new parts out. And sometimes those parts wouldn't come back. And, but we had the most patient, the kindest backers who were so supportive. They were absolutely delighted with their product. And all those bikes are still, they're still going now. And many of those bankers also backed us on our next campaign as well. They were like, we can't wait to see what you guys do next. So we're going to, we're going to keep supporting you. Well, that, that's what it's been. It's been a fascinating process that, you know, well, one, I emailed your support thing and you responded, can you come on the podcast? Like the whole process of like getting the bikes, it's like, oh yeah, it's, you know, you're another month closer. This is where you are. I guess it, it felt, you know, you were part of this little community, actually. I thought it was really good how you handled it because even with, um, all of the kind of unfortunate delays, I guess, you had to experience with the current one. You must have just tearing your hair out. This it's not us. You can't do anything. It's outside of our control. The, the lesson this year um, is really to recognize there are certain things we can control and then there's certain things that we cannot control and to recognize which is which. And they, we knew that there were certain things that we just could not change we cannot make a ship go faster. We cannot get customs to inspect any quicker. We cannot control that. What we can control is how we communicate it. We can also control 
our mental state around those problems to make sure that we think clearly and also respond the right way. So in recognizing that, we started to get pretty good at dealing with crises because this year was truly, uh, it was almost constant, mm. actually. Uh, every day we'd come in and be like, wow, this too? Yeah. Really? Like this as well on top of everything else? Yeah. <laughs> how, how, how can that be? Like how, and it's not really about luck. It's just about, it's about being, having a steady mindset and recognizing the things that you can change. Because I think you, you, what's been fascinating, you, you've the 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 kind of current climate for bikes is so popular now. Like you know, any e-bike, they're all selling out. Like every bike sells out, and especially e-bikes. So suddenly you had this like really valuable commodity that people want, like now, 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 and then you just throw every single problem. Yeah, the, the thing. it's exactly that. It's kind of when lockdown hit, we got a, a wave of new customers and it was a lockdown and people were in need. People bought a bike, yourself included, uh, because you needed a bike. And I think at that time, um, something like buying a bike on Indiegogo was maybe kind of confused with kind of purchasing a product because Indiegogo, you're not purchasing a product on an e-commerce platform. You're essentially backing the company and getting a bike as a reward. And we really kind of sympathized with like the people who bought a bike because they needed an e-bike. And we did our absolute utmost to get those as quickly as possible ahead of all of the, the factors that were coming our way. But we were just, at times it felt like we were just a punching bag for kind of uh, sort of delays uh, in, at various parts in the process that were just out with our control. And we were kind of there responsible for getting people up and running on the, the bike that they'd chosen to purchase with us. We were doing everything we could. But some things were just out with our control. We just had to take it. We just, we, we were like, there was a point where we were like, we just have to accept that we're just going to have to take this one. And that's okay. Because Did, is, it, is it stressful? It sounds really stressful. So, like, how are you able to compartmentalize? This is a problem I'm not going to lose sleep over. Oh, God, I'm losing sleep over it. <laughs> uh, we probably both have quite different answers to this. You go. go. Me go. Yeah. So I, I think... The, 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 the stress is best if you concentrate it. So it, it was literally the case that we'd sort of come in and there'd be a new piece of news from somewhere in our, on our, our production line that some other kind of delay or disruption had happened. And that's where you kind of, I would call it stress. This is where I think we differ. But I would say I would focus my stress on solving that one particular problem. And then as a result, understanding how that's going to impact everything else. And then as an intern, uh, understand how we can kind of best communicate that because it's, we kind of, we, we, we had to kind of open ourselves up a bit this year. We kind of had to just, we just had to bring people along. We kind of have to say, this is what's happening. You know, it's out with our control, join us, you know, like this is, we're doing the best we can bring us, bring us along the journey. But then you sort of have to compartmentalize the stress and just do your absolute best to get the job done at the end of the day. It, it makes, makes no sense to, um, reduce your quality of sleep so that you can't handle the next issue yeah. uh, over stressing. Just kind of really focus it in on on when it when it's required and getting the solution that's right. How would you answer that then? I got really into meditation this year. <laughs> you really like really into it. I'm and fascinated. I I me too. Yeah, it's been it's been one of the most transformational years because what I recognised was that we have an outer world and an inner world, and the outer world most of the time we can't actually change it and so we start pointing the finger at oh if only this ship was faster or if only the customs wouldn't inspect our stuff then maybe i'll be happy but that's not really how it works because we can't change that so 
So I realized I was needlessly suffering because of the, all of these things I couldn't change. So then I realized that there's an inner world, which is that I can change my thought patterns around these experiences. And in changing my thought patterns, the, the, the feeling of the stress or anxiety around that experience actually goes away. And so when that feeling goes away, the clarity of thought increases and then you can navigate out of that outer world crises with clarity and focus and, and give it exactly what it needs. So, for example, if a customer reaches out and they and we have had this, we got called some names this year. Mm, um, we did. I don't know if we can say those on the podcast. I don't think you can, no. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, got called, we got called some real things this year. And um, some I'm not entirely sure I disagree with. <laughs> like we do have big beards. I, I've shaved mine off now. <laughs> um, well, because you're front and center as well. Like as in, um, if you think of any other bike company, very few have their like, you know, their, their founders in the video. So like, I guess that's the, the interesting thing. And this is why I was asking if it's stressful because it, when I bought into it, I, I recognized you guys in the videos. You know, you saw you, it was fun. I kind of bought into you guys as much as the design because I genuinely thought the design was wonderful. I think the the blue classic AMX one looks absolutely stunning. Now I love the black one, but you know, it's fine. I've got my bike. Um, but I, when you then get, I guess, negative feedback, does it feel more personal because they they kind of know you through the videos, so or you, you're now with meditation, you're able to. Not, it's not me. It's just the process. <laughs> um, we, we've we've had a real journey with this because the the negative feedback will always be there, even if the product was one hundred percent perfect from today for the next ten years. That never had any problems. We can control others' state of mind, and so because of that, if someone has to rant at us, sometimes they just need to rant, and that's okay. And when we recognize that, we can actually create a space for them by which they can just rant and, and release. And we, we really believe that every single one of our backers, we think of them like a friend, like a family member, like a brother, a sister, a father, a mother. That, that's how we think about them because they've created us. And so we do respond to them kindly and um, we are really, we really try every, with every single person to ensure that they have the absolute best experience. And sometimes we don't, we're not able to do that. And, and, um, and so, but most of the time, the vast majority of the time we, we are. Yeah. yeah. I, I would say that the, the, um, the negative criticism hurts and that's kind of good in a sense because it helps us like every time we take a piece of criticism we take it on board and know that we can use it to either help us improve our process improve our product um any of those kind of going forward are, we're kind of being uh, given the data that allows us to get better but um it, it it's always offset with a ton of positivity that eventually comes through. Even in the darkest of times, you'll get that one message where someone says, wow, you guys must be having a really tough time. Still can't wait to get my bike. I understand what's going on. And suddenly it's kind of like a weight is lifted uh, off us as individuals and as a company to just know that like we're doing the right thing. And that one time where you get the customer who's, you know, waited for their bike and suddenly they're saying, now I can give my kid a ride to school and normally I didn't see them in the morning and that kind of stuff like really sticks as well so it's kind of it's one of those things where 
negative words have a lot more power than the positive ones but we we also get kind of a barrage of positive that really kind of kind of lifts us through yeah because I, I was <clears throat> i was going to ask i would say that if, if i was doing it, i'm quite an emotionally driven person like i, I want to like i i realize i just want to please people mm. you know like if you get into you know you love the bike you just want to get the bike in people's hands it's all exciting and then suddenly for the next three or four months there is no fun because there's delays and you haven't got the bike out and you're like oh man does it like bum you out for a bit or actually you knew this consistent, there was a plan and it's all, you know, you knew that the bikes would come and it was fine. I think there was never any doubt that the bikes were going to get here. That's the, that's the, th- that's the kind of thing that we could always rest on. We're like, we are going to do absolutely everything to get the bikes here. The, the, the variable is just time. Yeah. And we just have to ride, ride this wave through the, the time that is that kind of variable. Cause I am, um, I, I feel as a customer, I have a unique insight into and a good example of how you responded incredibly well to criticism, which was, I fell into the trap. I'd forgotten Indiegogo. You're not buying a product. You're buying into a, you're investing in you. And then the reward is a bike. And I think like, cause, um, you mentioned it earlier, one of my other create more podcasts was with another person who did a Kickstarter for the hummingbird bike. And I remember him going through all the same problems and stuff. So in one half, I was just an excited tech nerd who just wanted to get his hands on a really lovely bike really quickly. And then on the other side, I was like, why is it taking so long? And I emailed you and I don't know if this is just completely uh, coincidental timing. And I was like, you must know where my bike is, which shipping container it is. And you responded like within 12 hours and you're like, here's a map. Mm. This is your shipping container assignment. This is the location it is in the country it's late, but this is when it will arrive. And you gave a completely honest time. I think it was another six weeks. You were like, I'm really sorry. These are all the facts outside of hand. And I was like, okay. And then it arrived and it was great. And I think that showed a lot, I thought. Uh, that's great to hear because we did, there was a phase in the campaign where we realized that we could be communicating better and we made a real conscious effort to communicate better. And it was with kind of things like that, where it's kind of just arming you with the information you need to just kind of get you back on board and just feel like your bike is actually coming because like we know that it is yeah. um it's, it's a really powerful thing and these the, the maps especially is something that go down really well it's kind of when when there's still ambiguity we can say exactly where it is at this time and give you an estimate of how much longer it's got left to go and then you can understand kind of our position as well as knowing exactly where your bike is in the world at that time so it's, so good, it's good to hear that worked have you finished your consignment now for this Indiegogo thing? Are all the bikes out? You're done? Other than the stunning black, all black stealth one? Um, I, not I quite. There are some outliers still. And um, I, I think we really hoped to get those in in 2020. But these are the ones that are just uh, have a huge variety or have had a huge variety of just unexpected disruptions applied to them. Um, it's it's a I think the official number is we have shipped and delivered 94% of every single bike that was back through Indiegogo. Nice. So it's the remaining 6%. And um, I, don't, I don't want that to be seen as a small number because we are very emotionally involved in those last <laughs> six and we will get them those bikes as soon as we can. But situation has dictated that that's now actually going to carry on into 2021. And as a bit, a, bit, a bit of backstory, how much did you smash your Indiegogo target? What was the original? What did you get to? And how many bikes have you, what's the 100% bikes? How many bikes is this next one? This was 35,000 euros this time, wasn't it? Because campaign was in euros. And we made? Well, so depends if you want gross or net, but it's I about think just what point, it says on the Indiegogo. On Indiegogo one point, uh, depends on exchange rate, but I think today's exchange is 1.2 million pounds. <laughs> it's uh, up into the seven figures, which is good. So you could pay yourself this time. Yeah. Just about, yeah. Just about. I mean, it, it sounds like a lot of money, 
but the vast majority of that is spoken for before that money even leaves Indiegogo. Yeah, in terms kind, of production costs, it's it's kind of it puts a tear in your eye how much of that dis- disappears the moment it comes into the account and goes back out again. Because as a hardware company, we have a lot of. Well, what things to spend money on. What people listening don't realize is you are both sat in white sheepskin coats. You've got canes, gold top hats. <laughs> <you know. laughs> I wish we would have it no other way. Because <laughs> uh, I guess where I was going about the consignment is I know when you finished your first Kickstarter, the second you finished, two days later, you started a new campaign. I guess where I'm going is, is what's on the horizon after this one? Or are you going to have a break or are you just going to start a new product line? Drum roll. It's oh. another crowdfunding campaign. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so pass me the whip. Yeah, gone. <laughs> Fire away. Actually, before you say, what, when, at what point would you just become a company that gets outside investment and not choose crowdfunding? Or is actually such a good business model you would just continue using the crowdfunding? It's quite, it's quite repeatable. And um, there's, it doesn't have to work. It doesn't have to be independent of other avenues. Like we do sell B2B, we sell direct-to-consumer, and we are going into new year exploring new models for ownership, more integrated offerings, which we're really excited about. We're building a lot of really exciting technology as well. So we've um, assembled a, a fantastic team in-house and are really trying to think about how to make the electric bike ownership experience as effortless as possible because we've, we've got the product right. We've created a product that is effortless to, uh, to ride. And now we want to create a product that's effortless to own. And the marrying of those two effortlessnesses, <laughs> if that's a word, it is a word now. It is a word. <laughs> um, uh, uh, that, that is where we want to be because we really want people to love that journey, like to get from, from their home to their, to their office, to their to dinner, to wherever it is they're going, and to, be, to just love that moment. And I, and I think it's going back to that we we're talking about meditation and the 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 this inner world outer world experience that moving through a city can be something that is loved. It can be something that is enjoyed rather than endured. And when I look out the window, I see a lot of people that are enduring moving through a city. And we've now been building products for many years now that we know creates that loved experience where you get on it and you're on the roads and you're moving through space and you've just got this feeling in your chest of I am doing exactly what I want to be doing right now at this exact moment. And it's an experience that some of us don't, don't, don't have or haven't had since we were children. And we have adults who get on our bikes for the first time and they're like, wow, I haven't felt that since I got my first bike as a kid rolling down the hill. And here I am getting to work and feeling like a child. And we want that childlike sense of wonder for every single person. And it doesn't just begin and end at the product. It also begins the moment you experience our brand for the first time. Maybe it's three months down the line when um, you need to perform some maintenance on the product. Maybe it's it's um, it, it's at every single touch point 
it's the packaging, it's the, it's the way you're spoken to through customer service. It's that a whole experience that needs to be considered. And that's, I think, what we want to get right as product designers, which is design the whole experience. Mm. That a product is beyond the product. It's the experience, it's the service element. It's, it's, and, and we now know what we want to create. And the kind of company we want to create is when you walk into a brand space that we've created, we want everyone to feel like we are your friends, that you are our friends. And that we think we have a formula for that now as well. So we're going into 2021 with, with this overarching vision for what we want our experience to look and to, to feel like. Do you know what's interesting uh, hearing you talk? It, you know, before I'd ever ridden an e-bike, I was like, yeah, are they that good though? Are they that fun? It is incredible i don't know anyone that's ridden an e-bike that isn't like oh, that's just the best and especially the the amx one it's, it's like giggle inducing fast if you're used to like pedaling your own bike to suddenly like zoom up to like 30 kilometers or whatever it is it's so good and i think i think especially around london i think if you live in a city um, one of my friends has just uh, got a competitor's bike but he he absolutely loves just zooming around and he, you're right it, it is in a city, it's fantastic. And I, I do I do totally understand why you're excited to kind of, I guess, propose a new product. So can I guess, is, the, is it more like, is there more app integration, more like technology integration? Or how does it, or what do you, so do you want to say? Uh, so I think it, it's first worth, worth clarifying that this will be an equity crowdfund. So this won't be um, uh, buy, buy into the company as a reward, you'll get a product. This will be buy into the company and as, as an own a bit of the company. So we have been created by the crowd. We were launched by Kickstarter. We have existed through a combination of Kickstarter and Indiegogo. And now uh, everything we've learned to date has been a res as a result of the crowd. So it now makes sense to be able to get the crowd actually owning little sections of our company. So this is about um, buying into not just a single product this time. You'll actually be buying into the future of analog motion. And, and so presumably as an investor, there's like a return strategy. Is, is that how it works? You're allowed to say. <laughs> uh, it's a good question. I mean, absolutely. Now, there's a, different, there's a few different mechanics we're exploring, so we're not going to go into returns. But it's important to note that we have raised money in the past and our existing investors have um, a very healthy return on their investment. And there is no sign of that slowing down. The market conditions are prime for, for the product category that, that, that we create and um, we're very well lined up to to continue to capitalize on that. And we are starting to understand um, in quite intimate detail what we have to do to ensure that, that we are successful in our mission and that every single person who, who experiences our brand uh, experiences it with a massive smile on their face. And um, we've learned that from the last few years of being observant. And um, we have experienced a lot of successes. And we've also experienced a lot of, I, I say failures, but I say it with a smile on my face because everyone is just a lesson to be learned. And um, we're, 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 we're going into 2021 having consolidated all the lessons that we've learned. And we have a both mental and physical folio of all the things that we know we, we need to do right um, to continue to 
create in accordance with what our mission is. And we also know that if we do that, then we will continue to have a very successful company built on the right kind of values. Because you, you're, you're, you're bosses now, you have staff, you have to think about so many other factors now. It's not just bike design, it's like, how do we employ the best people? What should our company culture be like? I guess, how, how are you finding that transition of becoming so much more than the product designers you started out as and being business owners and managers and like heads of an investment company? Has it been a... It's a journey. It's a, it's a it's a journey, and you've got to love it for what it is. There's it's we don't see this as uh, one of those things where we're kind of heading for this ultimate end goal. It's just if we can make every single day um, part of that journey and an enjoyable part of that journey, um, then it then it's it's great. Really, it's 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 ever it's more challenging than we could ever have believed. Um, it's got the higher highs than we could have ever believed, lower lows than we could ever have believed, and um, every day is just. Uh, you literally learn to take the day as it comes. It's just there can be any kind of surprise on the table when you come in, and or it can just be a completely mundane day in the office. <laughs> yeah. Another pandemic. Yeah. And like, what, so what? What I motivates you then is it? Is it the bike design? Is it now? Now is analog motion as a company the thing that motivates you? Like, is it changed? Or you know, I guess what on a hard day you're like, it's good because I still get to design the bikes that I love. Or is analog motion the thing that you love now? And and not then doing a disservice to the bikes. But <laughs> does that make sense? I think it's the process. Yeah. It's the process that every single day is like being in a video game. And I don't watch any television or I don't have a Netflix account. I, I don't play video games because I am literally living in one every <laughs> single day. And it is so exciting, genuinely so exciting. The stuff that happens within these walls is so much fun. It is so profoundly stimulating in, in every way. It is also extremely challenging, but it, it's, like this, it's like this really difficult puzzle. And every day, and you've chosen that puzzle, most importantly. And so every day we have a series of problems to solve. And so we solve them. And then we reflect on how well we solve them. And then the next day comes and more problems come. And uh, yes, there's problems, but it's also wonderful experiences. Suddenly everything becomes really meaningful when you see it in that way. And when we recognize what are the things that make a company and yes, you're in our office and there's you know a nice sofa and there's all kinds of stuff around here and we've got some fancy lights in the corner. But what creates value in a business is the people, but also those invisible immeasurable unseen connections between people and that's the real value and so the challenge then is to just to foster those and to, and to grow those continuously and that's where the that's that's the value which no one can ever take away um and it just so happens that the more value you put on that the more emphasis you place on nurturing those the more the outer world material value also increases as well so these ideas that might seem at first ideological, like let's build a company based on friendship or let's be kind to each other, let's, um, let's be um, compassionate, let's, um, let's take, hold each other to account and, and let's um, be honest and open. Well, these, these um, immaterial, immeasurable strings that connect us also directly create very measurable, very significant material impact as well. 
So, so is this part of the company? This is your company culture. This is this is the is that if, if anyone like is that is that the kind of, of atmosphere that is in this office? It's like this is this is how we're going to work. This is our mantra. This is our, like our this is our, our kind of business code, for want of a better word. It's something we strive to. It's something we strive to. It, a company culture can be created in an afternoon by someone doing something and then someone else also doing it and then all of a sudden everyone is swinging from the rafters like the ropes you saw upstairs like that's now just become part of the culture because we thought it was fun one afternoon mm. so a lot of culture just is just created without any thought and then we have to decide was that good was that a good thing or is it a bad thing but we're also constantly striving to to um, imbue these values within these walls as well, and it's an impossible goal. We never we'll never get it right, but by striving towards it, it puts puts us on the right path. So I, I kind of <coughs> I should say that in your office, there's all these like bits of other types of bikes. I've just mm. seen like a three wheeler. Is that any any three wheeler? An yeah. electric one? It is. That's an electric drift type trike. Uh, electric drift trike. Ele- I can't say electric drift <laughs> with yeah. knackered back wheels, so that thing just slides around everywhere, does it? That's right. So it's got bits of um, PVC pipe over the back wheels to ensure that they get zero traction when you're on it. Absolutely none, and it is wonderfully dangerous. Yeah. It looks absolutely amazing. I, I guess, like, what, what's in in like the 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 e bike world? Like, what is the next trends? The reason I'm asking this is like I feel like ultimately a battery you've kind of maxed out legally whatever the legal limit is you know you hit the top speeds the, the battery can't get any bigger because it's heavier and more expensive what what is the next kind of what is the next thing that if, if you get because people are getting excited in e-bikes then i mean ultimately i think it's about the feeling now there are like you say thresholds to what we can do with power so we know what what boundaries we can push and what we can't but getting the experience right i think is really key and there are so many factors involved in creating that experience of ownership just like they have been explored with cars everything from from rental to ownership secondhand uh, ownership or or uber i mean there's so many ways to experience a car there's also so many ways to experience an e-bike and these are things that we want to be quite playful with in 2021 and really, ex- really explore those. And we have some theses uh, uh, that we'd like to prove. And so when's your next, uh, next campaign coming out then? Uh, second week of January. We'll second week January. Yeah, we'll be launching the crowdfunding campaign, yeah. Wow. And is, yeah. Is, 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 this isn't another bike then? No, so this is um, hosted through platform Cedars. Um, so you are investing just purely in the company, not in any one specific product. And is this to scale up the same bike, the AMX, and just make more of them? Or is this to develop another bike and then ultimately, I don't know, change the business model and how you invest in things? It's sort of both. We're kind of labeling it as to kind of get more people on e-bikes and also to expand and grow. Um, so but as it's a kind of, it's an investment, not just for a, a year or a month, you're kind of investing in us sort of indefinitely. So you're kind of investing in in the mission uh, as a whole. I think it's, a, I know you've put an enormous amount of hard work to get this company up to where it is, but I, I do think that I'm, I'm so envious of people who have, who've like invested in it, dreamt in it. It's actually happened in their own company and, it, and it's theirs and you don't, you don't have bosses, you know, I, I genuinely think worrying about what your bosses think is like 50 to 70% of your brain power half the time and freed from that shackle. Yeah, you make mistakes. I'm sure things go wrong all the time. You're like, I shouldn't have done that. But ultimately, you know, you learn 
so much faster by just screwing things up and then fixing it and doing a successful anything. Oh yeah, it's 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 the ultimate really. And we're kind of appreciative of that every single day that we come into the office. And I think that, does, that doesn't wear off. Would you, uh, if, if there's anyone listening who's thinking about doing a Kickstarter campaign, in your experience, is it like a, you should definitely do it or it like what's what do you think do it now yeah do it do it right now yeah don't wait just do it right now yeah that's <laughs> that's the advice yeah <laughs> that's a very that's a, a very positive end to the podcast thank you so much guys and i'm looking forward to becoming an investor next year with a podcast discount i, I don't know if that's built into your <laughs> business structure yet but <laughs> well thank you no worries that was really good There we go. That was Nav and Jack, the co-founders of Analog Motion, and that was such a fun podcast to do. I got to say, their their the kind of headquarters is a very cool place, and I got to sit on their awesome superpower trike. Um, I just I really enjoyed that process. That's the first one I'd done on my own for a couple of years, and God, I just felt so good doing it. I felt so energized afterwards. It was it was exactly what i wanted this kind of freeform chat with really interesting people and um, so i hope you enjoyed that click subscribe if you want to hear more next week we've got fred mills from the b1m which i'm really excited out about because that will be uh, almost five years to the week when i release it when i interviewed him for the original create more series uh, so i'm so excited to do that as well thanks everyone for listening Click subscribe or go on Create More Podcasts on Instagram and follow us. We've got loads of content coming up and uh, see you next week. Bye. I was like, oh, I love it. I mean, it sounds so good. It just sounds so creamy. I'm having to resist not making funny noises into the microphone. Yeah. And then you hear your own voice and you're like, God, I sound <laughs> I could listen to myself all day. Yeah, especially if you go really close to it. Yeah, that, that's when you become full BBC Radio 4 late night. <laughs> Hello and welcome to. <laughs>